Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Justin Cochran, CEO of Carbon Streaming Corp. Justin's built his career in financing companies through the streaming and royalty model. This has been very successfully applied to the mining and commodities industries, but now he's applying it to the world of carbon credits. We talk a lot about the carbon credits, and there's a lot of foot in the industry. It's just fascinating. We talk about Canada's role with the pan-Canadian approach to carbon pollution and how he is able to strike interest and educate investors on what the carbon markets mean and the industry and the opportunities there. Ultimately, he and his team raised over $140 million to invest in carbon projects, which will ultimately yield out carbon credits in the future. This is a great conversation and we really get into a lot of the details of what the opportunities are and what the industry is. So enjoy the show. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has also been a supporting member or part of the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in our show notes. Now enjoy the show. Justin, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here, Corey. What I want to do is start off with a, a bit of background on yourself. You've been involved in the royalty and streaming space for a long time, been more, or involved in financing, raising tons of money for a number of different deals. But I think the best thing we can do is get a background on yourself to frame the rest of our conversation. So yeah, can you give us some some history? Yeah, I would love to. And thanks again, Corey. So I started my career actually investment banking. So I spent about a decade with National Bank Financial, covering the resource, paper and forest products, clean tech, power and utilities, and actually eventually got into mining. And I was primarily based in Vancouver, but actually had a small stint in Toronto as well. And then I joined Sandstorm Gold as uh, executive vice president in their corporate development group in charge of new investments and strategy for, for Sandstorm Gold. Had just a fantastic time with Nolan and Dave and the whole team at, at Sandstorm. I still think very, very highly of, of that team. They've got a great portfolio of assets. And moved on from there in, in late 2015 and started putting the pieces together for Cobalt 27. And I was president and COO of Cobalt 27. We raised a billion dollars in, in about 13, 14 months to build up the largest stockpile of Cobalt in the world and did a number of royalty and streaming transactions as well. And then sold our primary Cobalt assets in that vehicle in late 2019. And the resulting vehicle that I was the CEO of was a company called Nickel 28 Capital Corp, still very involved there. And then just about two and a half, almost three years ago, uh, started and founded uh, Carbon Streaming Corp to take that royalty and streaming this model, which I'd been employing, and move it into a new commodity. And that commodity being carbon credits and, and voluntary carbon credits. And it's just been a 
it's been a wild and, and fun ride for the last few years running carbon streaming. Well, I think it's really interesting the application of like a tried, tested and true business model into this kind of new area of carbon credits as a commodity. I'm curious about carbon credits, starting off with how did you see this opportunity? And I'm curious right. where you or what the elements were to where you looked and said, okay, let's take that risk. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I guess early in my career, when I started covering the royalty and streaming space as an investment banker, I just fell in love with the business model. I really fell in love with the ability to finance almost any commodity in the world with this, with this form of capital, with this structured finance uh, in effect. And when I joined Sandstorm, actually one of the first investments I looked at was actually providing stream financing into a fish farm off the coast of Vancouver. And that time that, and even though we didn't fish farm, we could have, and actually it probably would have been a fantastic investment. It was a halibut farm just off the coast of, I think it was Vancouver Island actually. But that made me recognize at the time that we could put a royalty or a stream fine, what we call stream financing on just about any commodity. And at Sandstorm, we had coal, oil, gas, precious metals, just about every base metals commodity in our portfolio, a lot of which is still there, diamonds. And so we were financing a whole bunch of different commodities. And you know the same opportunity presented itself in cobalt when we started to really focus on electrification of the vehicle fleet, right? And this move towards lithium ion batteries and the need for more lithium and cobalt and nickel and graphite and all these commodities that were going to be dramatically impacted by this this move to an electric vehicle. And then when when we sold our cobalt assets, we said, well, beyond the electrification theme, there's this broader green theme and the need for more capital to invest in projects around the world to help fight climate change. Mm. And really the only economic way to do that was to look at carbon credits because you had governments around the world, corporations around the world as well, putting a price on carbon. And so you now had this new commodity that is going to be absolutely critical to financing projects around the world. And there was nobody else doing it. Mm. And so, you know, my business partners and I said, there's, got to be an, an opportunity to here to create a public vehicle that's investing in, in creating carbon credits. And so we launched Carbon Streaming, first public company, really first new investment vehicle focused on investing in these carbon projects around the world. And again, that was about three years ago. And it's we now have a, a large portfolio of projects, a huge pipeline of new investment opportunities. It's a really exciting sector. And I just love love the job. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. It is a fascinating space to be in. And I mean, it's, it feels like it's evolving all the time. And, and I've been out to a couple of things. I was out golfing and at lunch after and, and hearing, you know, a few different people talking about carbon. And they're all just, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of interest in the market space right now. And I want to get into that more and differences between the voluntary and regulated markets and all that kind of stuff. But just one more question about when you're pitching carbon streaming, you came up with the idea early on. You must have had a few looks of like, this is a wild ass idea and no, get out of my office. It's funny. I would say, I would say lots of looks, but nobody kicked us out of the office. And the reason for that was everyone loves the idea. They really, they can see that carbon and putting a price on carbon is the future. Right. If we are serious about our Paris Agreement goals.
goals and limiting global warming to one and a half, two degrees. I think there's broad recognition across the investment community now that putting a price on carbon is the only way to get there. So we had a lot of interest, but a lot of head scratching in terms of, yes, we understand this business model, royalty and streaming. We understand it works in mining. We understand it works in oil and gas. But are you sure that it's going to work in carbon, right? And Justin, we love the business idea, but we need to see you execute on the business plan and know that it can work. And the reason for the head scratching was there just wasn't a lot of it still isn't, frankly, a lot of familiarity with carbon markets. You talk about the voluntary markets, the compliance markets in Europe, you know, relative comfort around compliance oriented markets, which we can get into. But this concept of investing in what we call voluntary projects around the world that are not controlled by, you know, regulated entities, they're sort of left to to market forces, if you will, that was entirely new. And and again, not a lot of knowledge from the investment community. And that that was both the challenge, but also the opportunity. And I also believe that's an opportunity that's going to be around for decades as investors become more familiar with carbon, putting a price on carbon, and what kind of projects actually generate carbon credits. I could ask a lot of questions about that approach to how you're able to raise that money in the sense like, it would have taken a lot of education, it sounds like early on to bring investors around to what that means. But if you come out with a pitch and your initial pitch is an educational one, they're probably bored and lights out. So how was that? Like, did you actually have a strategic approach and saying, okay, let's get the initial meetings, let's get this interest going, and then let's push for, you know, due diligence and more education after that? Or what did that look like? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the pitch evolves a lot, right, from early days to where we are today. But, But when I go back to the early days, our pitch was very much an educational pitch. It was a pitch about what is a carbon credit? What types of projects generate carbon credits? How many projects are out there? Trying to build a concept of what is the addressable market? What's the size of the market today? Where do we see it going? Where do independent analysts see it going? And building up this story of this is a massive market with incredible potential and the first companies that come out and invest and create a meaningful portfolio are going to have a huge leg up. So it was it was trying to present that opportunity and, of course, get the audience to believe that that opportunity existed. And it wasn't easy and still isn't easy. There's still a big education piece in our current investor deck. And that is because we still have a lot of conversations that, that are educational in, in nature. But also realizing, and and, and this was true of Sandstorm, this was true of Cobalt 27, this is certainly true of carbon streaming. In order to win over these investors, you're not doing it in one call. You're doing it in generally three, four different meetings where you're introducing yourself, you're talking about your idea, you're over time showing that you're executing on your plan. And that's what you know gives the investors confidence and allows them eventually to make that investment decision. I think what, what I take away from that and what I really think is that financing a company is not necessarily an event. It's a process. And Absolutely. I think a lot of people look and say, okay, we got to go raise money as if it's just going to happen like that. But no, there's a 
ongoing process of, you know, to throw some marketing speak around, bringing people down that funnel of just awareness that you got a deal all the way through to some consideration. And then that conversion point, it doesn't happen one shot. It's absolutely right. And actually, when you look at the company, if you look at Carbon Streaming, you're right. There's sort of three funnels that we care about, right? The first funnel is the investor funnel that you just talked about, right? Like the process in order to secure an investor is is a lengthy one. And you got to start and kiss a lot of frogs, as they say, but you've got to start high and, and funnel that over time. The same is absolutely true for our investment pipeline, right? We're funneling projects through our investment pipeline before we're choosing you know, the few investments that we're willing to make. And the same is also true of, of when we go to sell carbon credits, right? We Again, we have hundreds of companies that have reached out to us for carbon credits, and we have to funnel those buyers of carbon credits into different buckets, depending on demand that they have in terms of the size, the number of carbon credits they want. Also, of course, the price that they're willing to pay, the types of credits they're looking for, so there's, you know, I kind of see our company as three separate funnels, three different departments inside the company, of course, focusing on each of the funnels. And each one has to work and is key to our success because the business doesn't work if one of the other funnels breaks down, if you will. And of course, the funnels at various points in time, some are working better than others. So like my job as, as CEO, of course, is actually to make those funnels kind of sync up and work together. I never thought I'd hear a former investment banker and a CFA talk so passionately about marketing funnels, in essence. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, without the marketing funnel, both from marketing to investors and marketing our carbon credits to buyers, the business doesn't work without it. Yeah. And for me, just a final point to that, looking at it, it's a framework of operating. You need a lot of inputs up top to to refine them down for your outputs. And whether it's uh, customers or investors or whatever it is, and it's an ongoing process there. So can we talk a bit about the the carbon industry itself? When you guys raised, I think, over $140 million looking at and pitching the, the voluntary market and saying there's projects out there that can create credits, which much like you did with other resources or other commodities, excuse me, you can sequester and hold for a period of time and then and then sell as they appreciate. But that's all built on the voluntary market. Now, can we get a bit into the, the difference between the carbon markets and then maybe even the difference between countries and their, and their carbon markets or nations or regions? Yeah. So first off, when you think about a carbon credit, every carbon credit in the world, whether it's a regulated carbon credit or a voluntary carbon credit, But every carbon credit in the world represents one metric ton of greenhouse gas emissions. So 2,200 pounds of greenhouse gas emissions, whether that's carbon or methane, nitrous oxide, other greenhouse gases, but of course, the primary one being carbon. And so so every credit represents one metric ton of carbon. And then that credit can really exist in two platforms, one which we call the regulated market, That market being regulated is generally some kind of cap and trade program or carbon tax program. And and so what what we mean by a cap and trade program is when a government or regulated entity forces, and I'll just use some examples here, a power, a national power industry that has emissions of X and the cap is reduced over time. So in order to meet your emission goals from the Paris Agreement, you're going to reduce that cap over time. 
So that cap is being reduced. Meanwhile, the trading element is, is if you're one of those regulated power emitters and you're emitting more than your cap, you have to go into the market to buy carbon credits. And vice versa, if you're one of those power emitters and are, are emitting less than your cap, well, then now you have available credits that you can sell to one of those companies that's, that's over its cap. And so then every power emitter in that country, as an example, would have a cap that, again, reduces over time. And so within that market, those carbon credits trade and, and are fungible and can be traded between entities and a market price is set. We have over 60 different compliance regulated programs around the world. By far the largest is the EU emission trading system. And that is the European Union's cap and trade program where they're regulating emissions across the power sector and other industries. That is a last year traded over $800 billion in carbon credits. The amount of money that is moved between these, the ones who are emitters and those who are, have a, a surplus effectively is crazy. It's crazy. It's billions of dollars a day. So it is a massive, massive market. And some of those credits themselves are auctioned by governments to raise money, to support green initiatives and green investing. And you get that really across the board. And so within those regulated programs, again, you have these cap and trade programs, or you have a carbon tax. And let's use Canada as a great example. Canada has, has employed so far a carbon tax program where the Liberal government has announced we've got a $50 carbon tax today. So if you're a regulated emitter in Canada, and again, this is mostly focused on the power sector, but moving towards oil and gas as well. If you're emitting carbon, you would have a $50 carbon tax, and that carbon tax is going up to $170 a ton or a credit by the right. end of this decade. So by 2030, that $50 price is increasing all the way. It's $15 a year for another couple of years, and then it's $10 a year after that, up to $170 by 2030. If I'm not mistaken, that's under the this pan-Canadian approach to carbon as I understand? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a federal carbon pricing scheme. And there is within the Canadian program, the ability for provinces to have their own regulated carbon program. So Alberta is a perfect example of that as they, they have their own. Within Canada, where we are, what opportunities are there? What do you see there? Is there something, given that mandate, what is the opportunity? Yeah. So what I love about that Canadian approach is you're putting a price on carbon, again, $50 per ton per credit today, going to $170 by the end of the decade, you're putting a price on carbon. So if you're then now a carbon project developer, so let's say you're developing a project to capture carbon, you know, capture methane, whether it's from an agricultural project or heavy industry or you're conserving a forest through improved forest management practices, or you're replanting a forest that was deforested for some reason, whether through, through a forest fire or mountain pine beetles or for logging. If you're able to find a project and invest and put capital to work to reduce emissions, well, then you get a carbon credit. And that carbon credit now is being given a value by the federal government that's, again, $50 a credit today going to 170 So if I can sell that credit to that same regulated buyer who 
if they don't buy the credit, have to pay a $50 tax, well, then you're sort of putting yes. thing on the value of that credit. You know, that's a tremendously high ceiling today. And so, so when we look at carbon prices internationally in this, what I call this voluntary market, the average price is probably about $10 a credit. So in Canada, we're putting a $50 price on that same credit. So it, it's encouraging the development of carbon projects in Canada. And why would the federal government want to do that? Of course, it then helps us reduce emissions and, of course, then meet our Paris Agreement commitments for, for reducing you know, countrywide emissions. And so what you have now is governments around the world trying to do the same thing. They do it through carbon taxes or through these cap and trade programs, but they're all designed to help meet their Paris Agreement commitments, which we call NDC commitments, but naturally determined contributions, but meeting those countrywide commitments to reduce emissions. So with that, with just in the markets in Canada, does that not open up a, you know, effectively a, a big opportunity for what you're doing and these emitters, the oil and gas producers, the energy producers to say, hey, we don't want to be paying 50 or 65 or 85 dollars, 80 bucks a credit. You know, we'd look to buy and buy the ones that you have on in store. Is that not the, you know, where you're at and, and they can get a discount? That is absolutely the plan. The federal government is yet to finalize its federal offsite pricing scheme. The hope is that that's done later this year. And within that, there are some categories of projects, agricultural, methane capture, these improved forestry management. And so those projects, once the, the federal program is approved, we would then look to sell credits under that under that scheme. Again, not finalized yet, but hope that it's finalized sometime soon. That's the opportunity, Corey. Absolutely, is to is to help finance projects like that in Canada and sell those credits to regulated emitters in Canada. And of course, the thought is that more and more companies and industries will become regulated. So you get greater demand which will come for you know, and come and help. And, and we would provide the supply and you'd have demand coming in from various industries. Now, you know, one thing that I think is necessary for, for this to really take hold is like is a standardized approach. And when we look at business, we have standardized accounting policies and audit policies for public companies and so forth. When it comes to measuring carbon credits and saying, you know, this swath of land is worth X per year, how is that done and, and who are the bodies there and how much of a mess is that or how, how solid is that? It's a really, really great question. It's, it has historically been a bit of a mess, to be honest, but is getting significantly better over time. And what you have is these independent organizations that verify and register carbon credits. So the largest in the world is a group called Vera. It's out of Washington, D.C. It's a U.N.-backed nonprofit organization. They do, and they would verify 85% of the credits that I'm talking about, the, the voluntary credits that are issued by these projects that either avoid or absorb carbon from the atmosphere. And so Vera does 85% of these. They have a very standardized, in the very multiple levels of independent auditing, again, very much like an accounting standards board would require independent audits. Vera requires independent audits. Those standards have continued to improve over time. And 
part of the messiness and my comment on the messiness is there is, of course, not the only one. There's gold standard. There's there's the American carbon registry. There's the, the carbon action reserve. There's Pure.org. There's lots of different registries and verifiers that are trying to do the same thing. Vera, again, is by far the largest, but there is a lot of work underway by various organizations to try and standardize everything across the board. It would be like a U.S. gap and a Canadian gap, right? And we now we have you know international accounting standards. So, so it's work underway to try and create an international standard that can work across all projects to ensure that you know a forestry project that's being protected or being reforested in Africa is treated the same way as as a forestry project that's being conserved or or in Southeast Asia or a renewable energy project in in a developing country is treated the same way across you know, all developing countries and so it's creating this common set of principles and agreed approach approach that then the buyers can have confidence that they're buying something that's been independently reviewed and is valuable all over the world because the standard would be the same. Yeah. There's a lot of questions that are coming to mind right now. And one is like, I, th- I think the, probably the best analogy is that of like, we moved from GAP and, you know, Canadian US GAP, and now we've got an international set of accounting standards that we ch- tend to go by. When it comes back to the world of carbon credits, it's nice to see that the free markets at play there. You'd think that that would be an instantly regulated approach by the governments as well, but it looks like, there's players out there looking to verify. When they look at different assets, because effectively a forest is an asset the same way a mangrove is a carbon sink in an asset, the same way carbon capture and kind of sequestration in the, in the ground is, is a form of an asset. How do they measure these? And, and does each one have an equal weighting or are there certain things that are, that are less valuable? I'm glad you asked because it's a really fascinating part of this of this industry, which is the measurement's quite easy, right? Because all you're doing the greenhouse gases. And so the way we measure it is either that metric ton of greenhouse gases that's been prevented from being emitted. And there's a fairly you know common way of measuring that, not not too difficult. Or it's carbon that's being captured from the atmosphere. So it's either we kind of broadly put them into either avoidance or removal. So you're either avoiding okay. the emission of that of that ton, or you're actually actively absorbing it from the atmosphere. It's one of the, the one of those two things. But whether you're absorbing carbon in a rainforest in Africa or Brazil, or you're absorbing that from a mangrove, or absorbing that from a terrestrial forest in Canada, the reality is those are all treated very differently, right? And they might have a different value. And of course, then compare that to a methane capture project or a carbon capture project. The credit is not necessarily created the same way, like it's through forestry, it's through mangroves, it's it's through technology-based applications. So not only is the way that that credit is created is different, but also, of course, where it's created is different. And depending on how it's created, a lot of the value in this market is determined by are there other benefits associated with that carbon credit? So, for example, if you're protecting the Amazon or a forest in Southeast Asia, you might have significant 
community investment and community benefits associated with it. You would have significant biodiversity benefits by protecting a rainforest and protecting endangered species where they, you know, they call these trees their their home, right? Their local habitat. Same thing with a mangrove. You've got a massive marine environment, a hotbed for, you know, sea turtles and seahorses and and all kinds of different fish species. So so you have these other benefits associated with carbon projects and the value that then a buyer ascribes to that credit is very different depending on how it's created. And so different, Corey, this is, this is what I find is so fascinating about this industry is you have some technology-based credits, again, one metric ton of carbon dioxide, some technology-based credits that are selling for over $1,000 a, a credit. And at the same time, you have a carbon credit produced from a renewable energy project in a developing country that's selling for $3 a credit. And you have everything in between. Now, as, as I was saying earlier, the average is about $10. So of course, the the, the real volume is at the lower end of the market yeah. where we look at renewable energy projects as an example. But there's a massive difference between, of course, the $1,000 credit and the $3 credit, yet they both represent one metric ton of, of carbon dioxide. So many questions. So many questions. <laughs> I can understand where if you've got projects where, and I believe carbon streaming does, where these projects have a lot of social impact. There's a lot more than just saying, hey, we grabbed a ton of carbon and here's a credit. There's more to it. So there's a, a higher value I think could be ascribed to it. Absolutely. Compare that to something like a carbon capture project, which you know, you're getting a lot of investment in Alberta as an example, to put carbon back in the ground. Now that to me is more of a mechanical technological play. But they still have, like, why would the market not just look and say, I just need carbon credits. So I'm going to go for the, the least expensive opportunity or at least expensive option. Well, so it's doing a bit of both. I think there's common recognition across the industry. And again, Canada is a perfect example that carbon prices have to go up and you've got to start somewhere. And so you have companies that are investing in both companies and countries and other other actors that are investing in these technology-based solutions that frankly are a much higher cost solution to reducing carbon. But you can't get to net zero without reducing those emissions over the next 20, 30 years. And so you got to start somewhere, right? It's like the first cellular or mobile phones or the first electric vehicles they're all extremely expensive. It's the same way with carbon. If you want to reduce carbon from heavy industry today or absorb it from the atmosphere, it's very expensive to do so. But hopefully that cost comes down over time. So you've got early adopters and companies that are trying to invest in that technology to scale it and reduce the cost. And we absolutely need that. At the same time, you've got the lower cost you know, sources of supply. And that tends to be nature-based solutions, right? That's protecting a forest that would have been deforested. It's starting to plant trees and protecting mangroves and converting, you know, developed countries or developing countries to move away from fossil fuel-based power generation to renewable energy-based power generation. Those types of projects tend to be your most economic at today's carbon price. And the reality is that if you're Microsoft or you're Google or you're Salesforce, 
you're supporting both types of projects. You're supporting the high cost projects because those are the ones that are likely creating the larger social benefits, the larger biodiversity benefits, scaling technology that's absolutely needed. So you're going to be buying credits from there, but you're also buying a lot of credits from renewable energy projects and nature-based projects that aren't doing those necessarily. So in essence, I know there's a separation between voluntarian and regulated, but in a market where billions of dollars is being traded for credits and a large company like Google, who they may have some social good initiatives, they can balance their portfolio of, of carbon credits to look and say, we're going to go and support these communities here, here, and here through the acquisition of X credits, but we're also going to dollar cost average down effectively to through other forms of credits. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So they're not buying credits from one project. They're buying credits from a portfolio of projects. And likely depending on where their carbon footprint is, they would look to try and align purchasing from different projects depending on where their, their emissions actually occur. And that you know, and that that will have a cost associated with it. But the cost, again, for a lot of these companies is relatively insignificant. If you were to create, and I'm gonna take a wild guess, but if you were gonna carbon neutralize the shirt that you're wearing or the shirt that I'm wearing, which I'm sure is not a carbon neutral shirt today, but if I wanted to make it or the company designing the shirts wanted to make this carbon neutral shirt, the cost would be insignificant relative to their other input costs. And so right. what we're, where I actually think the really interesting side of this market goes, and this is kind of my passion project, if you will, and I love talking about it, is, is that companies should be, and I believe will be over time, giving consumers the option of buying carbon neutral products, goods, right? It might be, yeah, you know, it might be the car you drive, the shirts you wear, the food you buy. It could be anything that you consume, much like you've got the choice of buying organic food or not organic food, and the organic food is priced at a premium. There's no reason that every product in the world couldn't also be associated with a carbon to say you're buying a carbon neutral t-shirt and i promise I that, you there'll be demand for that right if you go buy a bottle of evian today in the grocery store your local convenience store you turn it over you'll see on the label it says carbon neutral and so yeah. every bottle of water i buy today is an evian bottle of water and i promise you that the cost to evian to do that is insignificant and yet now i'm buying evian water over Dasani or whatever, right? Yeah. And so... It and, also, and, I just want to add, like I envision, I've seen this before, you, you make an online purchase and then there's a little toggle option, you know, kick two bucks over to this local charity or, you know, kick X percent to make your purchase net zero or effectively carbon neutral. Like right. that's, that's how the consumer could start to participate in that. Right. And so you can either, if you're, you can do it online very simply and what they're probably doing is ascribing some amount to whatever the carbon footprint is to buy a carbon credit or the company can just do it themselves and give the consumer an option or not give the consumer no, an option. Just, just, just say just it is. Create a brand and, and create a product line or move yeah. your entire brand to being carbon neutral. And we're seeing that with energy companies, by the way, they're massive, massive emitters, of course, where they're looking to sell carbon neutral energy products. They could have demand of 
you know, 100 million carbon credits by moving out, you know, a couple of years just to make, make their products carbon neutral. And then, of course, if they're selling carbon neutral products, it means the buyer is now buying a neutralized, you know, they don't have a carbon footprint associated with that energy product. That's what the energy companies, the Chevrons, the Shells, the Exxons, that's where I believe they'll move over time. And they're under pressure, not, not only from regulators, but from investors, from their consumers to do that. And that's why this market, we believe, is going to explode over the next decade, because you're going to associate these credits with products and you're going to have corporations that are being regulated and investors that are forcing those companies to neutralize their carbon footprint. Yeah, fascinating. A final thought on that is we're seeing more and more of that. And what comes to mind is flights. We just booked some flights recently. And you're seeing like, you know, minus X percent carbon. You know, they're kind of showing the different carbon options on there. So it's working its way into our economy. And that's that's pretty fascinating. It's definitely working its way into the economy. But I would say up until about 18 months ago or two years ago, Corey, nobody seemed to care. Yeah. The big change that we're seeing in the last, like since the pandemic, just in this last, you know, again, 18 months, two years, is people are starting to recognize that climate change is here. It's kind of, you know, unavoidable to see, you know, the, the climate impacts that we see in Canada, of course, but around the world. And there's a way now to make a difference. And the carbon credit and being carbon neutral is, is the best way to do it. And so even though on Air Canada, for example, I think you would have been able to buy carbon credits, you know, to offset your flights for at least the last six or seven years on Air Canada. I don't know a single person that was actually doing it. But I would say in the last, again, 18 months, two years, now people are starting to talk about it. And I think that's tremendous for this industry it's tremendous for the environment and climate change as a whole. The other interesting fact, which I'll just point out for listeners, is when you think about what we need to accomplish over the next three years, to next 28 years to get to carbon neutral, and that's the goal is by 2050 to get to a carbon neutral world, we're talking about up to 9 to $10 trillion of annual spending, almost 10% of global GDP needing to be spent to get to that carbon neutral world. That is a massive amount of capital that needs to be committed. And the best way to do it is to put a price on carbon, but that's the opportunity, right? Is yeah, yeah. It's, it's creating a new mark, 10% of global GDP, right? It would be larger than you know the vehicle industry as an industry again to fight climate change and carbon is of course only one way to do is one of the ways to do that but i believe and most people believe it's going to be a relatively significant player in in reducing global emissions it's quite fascinating capitalism finally meeting conservation in a sense and so really yeah. quite fascinating yeah. nothing happens without that cap like the reality it's unfortunate of course yeah, you'd love, you'd love capitalism not to have to have a role. But of course, as, as capitalism and the capital markets come into play, it can be a force of good. And in this, it can also, of course, be a force of bad in, in certain circumstances. But in carbon, it's going to be a force of good. And that's what I love about the industry. Awesome, man. I got a few more questions. Well, I got a ton more questions. Listen, it's a good thing we're not having a scotch. When it comes to carbon projects, again, where does carbon creation start and where does it end? 
So it's a fairly simple term, which we call additionality. And so in order to create a carbon credit, and again, where the carbon sort of starts and ends is it's got to be carbon that's either, again, been avoided from being emitted or being absorbed from the atmosphere. But it's got to, this concept of additionality is that it wouldn't have occurred in a base case scenario, right? So the carbon project is designed to encourage something to happen that wouldn't have happened in a base case scenario. And so that cornfield is an example. You can't get a carbon credit if from a cornfield that where the corn is just going into animal feed and is going to be emitted in the regular course as a business as usual kind of scenario where you might be able to get a carbon credit from a cornfield. And probably what this gentleman is referring to is if you take the carbon that's created from that cornfield, again, it's absorbed naturally from the atmosphere, right? And creating this corn through photosynthesis, of course, you're creating carbon. If you're taking that carbon then and then putting it into a permanent storage somewhere, and there's projects called biochar projects as an example, where you're converting that carbon into biological charcoal, which stores carbon for a thousand years. Mm. And you're either putting that into soil, you're storing that underground, you're putting it in some application where that carbon is never released. Well, then again, that's something that didn't exist in a base case scenario. It's now investment that's required to convert that corn into biological charcoal, what we call biochar. And that activity then is avoiding the emission or absorb, is absorbing carbon from the atmosphere and converting it into permanent carbon storage and thereby is a net benefit to the environment. And, and, and so sorry, the, the term you had for that is additionality, the concept of additionality. The concept of it needs to be additional, needs to be something over and above, additional, over and above what would have occurred in a base case scenario. Interesting. And so okay. you're always measuring these projects against what would have occurred in a base case scenario. So a forest that you're protecting or conserving, you're looking at it and saying, what are the active areas of deforestation? What are the pressures forcing deforestation to occur in this rainforest? And if we can put an end to those pressures by putting a price on carbon and investing in local communities and reducing deforestation or whatever the primary drivers of deforestation are, well, then we've avoided the emission of carbon that would have occurred in a base case scenario. So everything is measured against this base case scenario. And it's that common set of principles that we talked about earlier establishing these common set of principles that, again, the drivers of deforestation, the absorption of carbon from a cornfield or other you know, mangroves or trees can all be measured in a common way. Is there a risk profile there of, let's say, carbon streaming goes and puts about X million bucks into a forestry project? You know, instead of chopping down this forest, it's old growth. Let's leave it there. And so you've invested in that project is there a risk there that if that was to burn down, would you still have the credits? And, you know, I, and I look and I'm, you know, bring it back to mining. If you go and invest in the stream of a mine and, and there's a collapse in the mine and, you know, all of a sudden your streams cut off, what does that look like? How do you factor in for that? 
again, a very, very good question, Corey. So every forestry project that issues a credit actually does have a detailed risk assessment that is done. And this risk assessment is looking at what is the risk of a forest fire? What is the risk of illegal logging? What is the risk of protecting this forest, but you know that amount of logging just occurring in the property next door? which is a concept we call market leakage. So this detailed risk assessment is required for every project that Vera certifies. And then within that risk assessment, Vera says, okay, if there's a 20% risk on an annual basis of a forest fire, of illegal logging, of these activities occurring, we will require 20% of your credits to be set aside every year into what we call a buffer account. It's basically an insurance policy that protects against those types of events. Very rare, of course, that the entire forest would, would break down. down. You'd have forest fighting capabilities and hours and other things that in a rainforest, of course, a forest fire of that magnitude is, is unlikely. Okay. But you do have localized events that, that can occur. And we set aside credits that act as that insurance policy. And then Vera, as an organization, has what we, again, what we call buffer pools, buffer pools against every nature-based project. And so Vera, in effect, creates its own sort of global insurance policy to protect against those events. And what it means is those events will occur, but it also means that there's this buffer account that is, again, designed to act as that insurance policy. And it's worked historically extraordinarily well. Um, really interesting. And projects over time, if those events don't occur, can have credits actually released from their buffer account as they, of course, continue to grow. That buffer account grows and grows and grows every year if credits aren't utilized, if insurance credits aren't needed for those types of events. So it's really an interesting, it's a very logical way of protecting against that risk. And over time, I think Vera would tell you they've been very, very conservative and for the most part, those buffer credits haven't been needed and will subsequently be released. And of course, it's a learning process over time. Of course. Now, throw your, your CFA hat back on. How do you factor for that in your modeling and your accounting and, and your streaming models when you look at projects and you say, okay, well, there's a risk profile to this and part's going to be put over to held in trust effectively. How do you account for that? So we actually don't value that insurance buffer in any way. So that oh, okay. to us is just additional upside. If buffer credits are eventually released, then fantastic. That's just additional upside for us. But similarly, we will look at the risk profile and say, are we happy with the risks that were ascribed here? Do we have the same view? Do we think credits will be a little bit less? We've certainly taken a look at a number of projects where we've haircut what we think would be the number of credits that these projects generate for various reasons. And so we take a very detailed sort of diligence approach, utilizing our own third-party consultants, as well as our own internal carbon team to make sure that we're, we're looking at it in a logical way or comfortable with the assumptions that have been made. And of course, they're only investing in the highest quality projects. But, you know, that's a, an extensive process that does take a fair amount of time. Yeah. Oh, man. Fascinating. Justin, I want to keep going, but I, I know that we're going to have to wrap up here. 
I'm curious now, actually, on a personal level, like outside of this really interesting experience in the world of finance and everything there, I have an impression you're definitely the kind of outdoorsy person, but I'm also, what do you read or what do you do outside of, of chasing carbon credits? Yeah, you're right. Is what I love to do. The long hair maybe shows, but I've got two young kids. And so I'm, I'm really spending just about every waking hour where I'm not working with them. And that's out of the cottage, on a boat, going fishing, skiing, you know, playing with them outdoors. It's, you know, I try and get as much sort of family time as I can. From a reading perspective, you know, I love reading just everything from fiction to nonfiction. You know, I've just finished Alice Schroeder's Berkshire Hathaway biography on Warren Buffett, which I found oh, wow. absolutely fascinating. Similar like Elon Musk's biography, I found, you know, one of the most fascinating books I've read in a, in a long time. So I love biographies, but I've also been reading quite a bit about climate change. And then I just love fiction as well. So you'll, you'll find me reading just about anything when I can in my spare time. But also if I'm on a plane, it's The Economist. And I actually just like oh, really? staying current on world events. And yeah, but mostly yeah. I'd say kids and spending time outdoors when I get a chance. So we just had our first kid, he's 10 months old. And it's oh, like, correct. oh my God, it's wonderful. But holy cow, man, it's so much work. And it's like, you get on a plane and all of a sudden it feels like a vacation just being on the plane. <laughs> well, mine are well past that age and it, it only gets easier. Every year it gets easier. I'm taking my 11 year old on a fishing trip in Alaska in a week and, and going to you know be outdoors for a week on the river. Can't wait. Should be a ton, a ton of fun. And they're at the age now where you can do that. And it just gets better. That's great, man. Right on. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. I wish we could do this more often. Really insightful. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Corey, for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation as, as well. And let's do this again. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.